In the 1970s and 80s, an interesting academic dispute rose between two rival camps of scientists in the field of paleoanthropology, the study of human evolution. The main question dealt with the theories of when and where the modern human, the Homo sapiens, appeared. Both sides agreed upon two main facts. The first was that fossils clearly show that the first humans appeared in Africa about a million and a half years ago. Their brain was relatively small, but their physical structure was similar to ours, and they walked on two feet. This human creature, named Homo erectus, left Africa about a million years ago and spread around the world, from Asia to Europe. During that time, the Homo erectus evolved and split into different species of humans, and among those species was the Neanderthal, who lived in Europe and the Middle East. The second agreed-upon fact was that today, there is no variety of humans. There is only one species, the Homo sapiens, and all living human beings alive today belong to that species. The main question of the dispute was this. Where did Homo sapiens come from, and what happened to the Neanderthals and the other human species that lived for a million years or more, yet no longer exist? Why are there Homo sapiens now, but no Neanderthals? Some of the scientists involved in this debate claim that the Homo sapiens is a descendant of these different human kinds, that they mated and intermixed with each other during all those years, and that we are the result of this intermixture. This theory is called multi-regional origin of modern humans, since the intermixture took place in many areas around the globe at the same time. Other scientists claim that such intermixture never took place. Their theory claims that at some point, many years past the era of Homo erectus, the Homo sapiens appeared in Africa, left the continent, and conquered the world. Wherever the Homo sapiens met other human kinds, such as the Neanderthal, he replaced them, either naturally, through competition for the same resources, or forcefully. This theory is known as Out of Africa. For a long time, scientists searched for answers under the ground, in fossils and bones. Yet all this time, the answer was hidden in the most unexpected place, yet the closest to us, our DNA. Hello and welcome to Curious Minds. I'm Kelly O'Loughlin. This episode, the Molecular Clock and the Real Adam and Eve, Part 1. CM Pod is proudly sponsored by Outbrain. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably used Outbrain today. You just didn't realize it until now. Outbrain is the service that recommends which stories to check out next when you're browsing your favorite sites. Didn't know there was a service for that? Ever wondered why you see the stories that you see on sites like CNN, ESPN, and People Magazine? It's because Outbrain uses algorithms to figure out what you might like to see next based on your interests and other readers like you. So, the next time you reach the end of a story on your favorite site and you're thinking about what's next, remember... Outbrain thinks of that for you. Outbrain, we could all use a little direction. Visit outbrain.com for more info. Hello, and welcome to Curious Minds. 
The story of the molecular clock begins in Paris, where Austrian Emil Zuckerkandel was studying biology. After completing his thesis, Zuckerkandel went looking for an academic position. His colleagues in the United States suggested he contact a famous scientist named Linus Pauling at Caltech, the well-known technology institute in California, since they were conducting research on the same topics. At first, Emil didn't even consider the suggestion. Linus Pauling was one of the most famous scientists in the world at the time. He made breakthrough discoveries in chemistry and nuclear medicine. He won two Nobel Prizes, one of them a Nobel Peace Prize, due to his anti-war activity. Emil just couldn't fathom that this renowned scientist would be interested in working with an anonymous and young researcher like him. But when Emil heard that Pauling was coming to Paris, he decided to seize the moment. He sent Pauling a letter and the two scheduled to meet at a hotel. The meeting was a big success and it resulted in the American scientist Pauling inviting Emil to join him at Caltech. And in 1959, Emil Zuckerkandel and his wife arrived in California. Unfortunately, things didn't start out so smoothly. Emil's first conversation with Pauling at Caltech left Emil disappointed. Emil had begun his research on certain chemicals that were found in crabs, and he found this work to be fascinating and challenging. But right off the bat, Pauling recommended he leave this field and focus instead on hemoglobin, a protein found in red blood cells that is responsible for transporting oxygen to the cells. Pauling said, quote, I think it will be very difficult for you to reach any unequivocal results in a research of unknown chemical compounds in crabs. You should work on the hemoglobin. It is much more familiar. End quote. Emil wasn't happy with this recommendation. What's the point of researching a well-known and already researched protein? Isn't science all about discovering new things? If Pauling was wrong, Emil could find himself wasting years on useless research. Yes, Pauling was an experienced and intelligent scientist, but even he could make a mistake. But Emil had come so far to work in Pauling's lab, so he pretty much had to abide by Pauling's recommendation. So Emil left the crabs behind and started working with hemoglobin. Two years later, in 1961, as Emil was about to publish his first significant paper, he offered to Pauling that they publish the paper together. Pauling was barely part of Emil's research. In fact, during that time, he was very involved in anti-war activity and did relatively little scientific work. Still, Emil knew that even if Pauling's contribution to the paper was minor, having his famous name next to Emil's would greatly help promote his work. Pauling agreed and even came up with an interesting suggestion. The paper was meant to be published in a special edition of a scientific magazine celebrating a Hungarian scientist's birthday. Pauling knew that the papers scheduled to appear in the special edition wouldn't be inspected as harshly as is the norm with peer-reviewed scientific journals, and therefore he thought it would be a great opportunity for Emil to insert some exceptional thesis into his paper. A scandalous idea, something that would make waves in the scientific community. So, Emil did just that, and his scandalous idea did go on to generate some major waves. To tell you more about Emil's idea, let's turn it over to Ron. Hey, Ron. Hi, Kelly. I'm here at the stables. Stables? Do we have horses? 
only one horse so far, but this is just the beginning. You know how gas is so expensive and podcasting isn't a gold mine? And a horse needs nothing but hay and water. So I'm going to sell my car and ride a horse. Do you even know how to ride a horse? Well, not yet, really. I've never actually seen one up close, actually, but never mind. Anyway, hemoglobin, the protein that Emil Zuckerkandl was researching, can be found in many mammals. Every species has a slightly different and unique version of hemoglobin, much like a unique fingerprint in a human. Emil researched the differences between human hemoglobin and animal hemoglobin in order to learn about the evolution of every living species. For example, science teaches us that we and this beautiful animal I'm standing next to used to share, millions of years ago, an ancestral father. An interesting question is when and where humans and horses split from their mutual ancestral father. Before anything, we must understand how the unique variations of hemoglobin are created in each species. The recipe for making hemoglobin is in the DNA, and while this recipe stays the same between generations, every now and then a random mutation can occur. These mutations change the recipe slightly, creating a new variation of hemoglobin. Now, after humans and horses parted ways and split from their mutual ancestral father, their DNA mutated independently. These mutations accumulate over time so that after many millions of years, human hemoglobin and horse hemoglobin contain many such differences, like two pairs of shoes that left the factory looking exactly the same, but after years of wear and tear with different users, are now easily distinguishable. Since the accumulated difference depends on the length of time since the species split, it's easy to see why human and ape hemoglobin, for example, are much more similar to each other than human and horse's hemoglobin. On the surface, though, this sort of information does not reveal when, on a timeline, an evolutionary split happened. Mutations, by their nature, are completely random. By identifying three mutations on a certain DNA, who could say for sure whether these mutations happened during the last three million years, or perhaps only two or ten? Emil's brilliant idea was that one can treat these mutations as if they happen at a set pace. It is true that mutations are random, but they do follow some statistical rules. It's like rolling a dice. Every time you roll it, the number rolled is completely random, yet after throwing it dozens and hundreds of times, we know that all the numbers will be represented at roughly the same ratio. If a piece of DNA contains 12 mutations, and a mutation occurs roughly once every million years, one can assume that 12 million years had passed. This idea is the foundation of the molecular clock theory. The clock hands are the mutations that cause changes in a protein, and every change is a tick that moves the hand forward. The reset point of the clock, the moment when it starts ticking, is the moment when two species split from their mutual ancestral father, since as of that point they share no connection, and each of them develops different mutations. In order to use the molecular clock and calculate the pace of mutations occurrence in certain species, researchers must calibrate it using fossils and other techniques. 
In the case of horses, for example, the mutation pace is one mutation every 14.5 million years on average. If we can identify 18 differences between human hemoglobin and the hemoglobin of horses, a simple calculation will show that our ancestral father lived about 130 million years ago. This technique actually allows researchers to draw an evolutionary tree of almost every creature on Earth based on their genetic data. Whoa! Calm down, boy! Whoa! Ron, was that a horse? Yes, I think it's hungry. Do you happen to have hay? Are you sure that that's a horse? Uh, the guy I brought it from promised me it's a horse. But then again, it does seem to have pretty long claws for a horse. Uh, and I'm beginning to think that hay isn't its favorite. Whoa, boy, calm down. All right, well, good luck with your horse. Now that we understand the molecular clock and evolutionary tree, let's get back to Emil Zuckercandle and Linus Pauling in California. As time went by, Emil came to understand the wisdom behind Pauling's advice to study hemoglobin when he first came to Caltech. The fact that hemoglobin had been thoroughly researched by other scientists allowed Emil to easily identify the mutations he was looking for, and his colleagues were soon nodding in agreement with the validity of his findings. As the 1970s came around, molecular biologists had developed better instruments to investigate protein and DNA, which significantly improved their research. Yet, evolutionary dating using a molecular clock still wasn't an accepted technique among researchers. The reason was that calibrating the clock was a difficult, complicated process with the potential to be, well, wrong. The pace of mutations can vary a lot from one species to another, and even between one gene to another in the same species. Among birds, for example, these changes occur at a fast pace, while among turtles, the pace of mutations is very slow. Without knowing how fast the molecular clock is going in regards to its subject, every estimate of time is nothing but a guess. A researcher who wishes to use the molecular clock must go above and beyond in order to prove that he calibrated the clock in a credible way, based on objective findings, like fossils. The molecular clock's credibility rose in the 1970s due to the work of Alan Wilson, a scientist from New Zealand. Wilson used Zuckercandle's ideas to show that humans and apes split ways on the evolutionary road only 3 to 5 million years ago, and not 10 to 20 million years ago, as was the accepted theory. Wilson's claims were later confirmed by fossil discoveries in Africa. That wasn't the moment of glory for the molecular clock, though. Its greatest success has to do with the initial question we asked at the top of this episode. Where did the Homo sapiens come from? Rebecca Kahn graduated in genetic studies from Berkeley University in California in 1972. Genetics was still a young and fascinating field, and Rebecca was enthusiastically researching the connections between human genetics and their behavior. But then, after her graduation, reality hit. The technology used to map DNA and reveal its secrets was still in its infancy, and Rebecca envisioned herself spending long years in a lab with flies and mice instead of with people. 
she decided to leave the academy and found a job as a lab technician in a big pharmaceutical company. Yet Rebecca's natural curiosity was still burning. The lab where she worked was located near the mailroom of the pharmaceutical factory, which allowed her to get a glimpse of the professional magazines addressed to the company's scientists. Through articles she read in these magazines, Rebecca was exposed to new techniques developed in genetics research and their huge potential. In 1974, Rebecca decided it was time to go back to the academy, and she found herself in Alan Wilson's lab. Remember, he was the guy promoting the concept of the molecular clock. Through Wilson, Rebecca Kahn was exposed to the idea of the molecular clock. The key to using the molecular clock technique is to choose a relatively stable molecule, a molecule lacking many changes. In a molecule like that, every mutation will be easy to spot and locate, like a color stain on a black tie, for example. Hemoglobin seemed to be a perfect candidate since it is vital to the body, and vital molecules tend to change at a relatively slower rate than the less important ones. Our DNA is another vital molecule, but unlike hemoglobin, DNA is under constant change. Every time an egg and a sperm unite, a new fetus with a new and unique DNA is created, a result of a random intermixture of its parents' genes. In such a rapidly changing molecule, identifying random mutations is rather difficult. Luckily for Rebecca Kahn, not all of our DNA changes so rapidly. The majority of our DNA is located inside the cell's nucleus, but not all of it. Our body's cells also contain organelles called mitochondria. You may remember from school biology class that mitochondria were called the powerhouse of the cell. Mitochondria consists of up to thousands of tiny bodies enclosed in their own membranes that float inside the cell. Mitochondria have their own DNA and some unique characteristics that make scientists believe that mitochondria started as an ordinary bacteria. The common hypothesis is that billions of years ago, far away in the mist of time, a mitochondrian bacteria was swallowed by a cell. But instead of being digested as usual, it managed to establish symbiotic relations with its host. Basically, they live together. The mitochondrian bacteria supplied energy to the host cell, and in return, the cell supplied it with vital nutrients. This symbiosis was so successful that today one can find mitochondria in almost every living creature, from seaweed to human beings. The mitochondria's independent past resulted in a breeding process that's very different than that of humans. Mitochondria have no division between male and female. Instead, every mitochondrion is split into two equal halves, just like bacteria, and as a result, two identical copies of the mitochondrial DNA are created. The fact that mitochondrial DNA gets duplicated makes it a perfect candidate for implementing the molecular clock technique, since its DNA is a stable and unchangeable molecule, except for random mutations. 
At the time, back in the 1970s, it was still impossible to isolate mitochondrial DNA from a blood or saliva sample. Rebecca Kahn found a more novel source of tissue for her research. Quote, I needed more than just a blood sample to get enough tissue to purify human mitochondrial DNA for my work. So I started going to Lamaze classes and talking to pregnant moms about allowing me to take the placenta of their babies after they gave birth. Now there are some kids in Berkeley in Oakland with pictures of their DNA sequences in their baby books. End quote. Rebecca also received placenta samples from hospitals outside the U.S., which she then processed in a special blender that extracted the mitochondrial DNA. Khan spent so many hours watching the placenta samples spinning in the blender, she said, It took about five years before I could drink a strawberry margarita again. The mitochondria in our bodies have another unique characteristic that interested Khan. A baby receives its mitochondria only from the mother. After the fertilization is done, all the mitochondria in the sperm gets destroyed. So one can say with almost complete confidence that all the mitochondria in his or her body was passed on from the mother. This fact allowed Rebecca Kahn to draw a human evolutionary tree based on the molecular clock of mutations in the mitochondrial DNA passed over the generations from mother to daughter to daughter to daughter, and so on. It is the exact same idea that allowed scientists to draw the evolutionary tree of horses, apes, and early humans. Each female mitochondrial DNA has a unique fingerprint of mutations, which is similar to the other women who are her close relatives, but different from women who are not. Using the molecular clock, Kahn discovered that all living human beings, men and women, share a single ancestral mother. This isn't an ancestral mother in the metaphorical sense, but a real woman, flesh and blood, who lived in Africa 100 to 200,000 years ago. The media later gave this ancestral figure the name Mitochondrial Eve. Although her research seemed to be promising, Khan hesitated whether she should publish it or not. The molecular clock technique was still regarded as unreliable, and Khan felt that she didn't have enough mitochondrial DNA samples from women all over the world. Luckily for Khan, in 1982, a young scientist named Mark Stoneking joined Wilson's lab, and he managed to get mitochondrial DNA samples from around the globe. Those samples supported Khan's primary research, and in 1987, after many hesitations, doubts, and more than 40 drafts, Kahn, Stoneking, and Wilson published a paper explaining their findings. This episode is sponsored by Augury. Augury. Machines talk. We listen. Augury's technology is called predictive maintenance. It's built upon a simple principle. Every mechanical system produces unique sounds and noises. By attaching sensors to machines, Augury software can analyze subtle changes in these sounds and diagnose and predict future malfunctions before they occur. This analysis is done in real time using a smartphone. 
Augury is growing and looking for great engineers and developers who share their same passion and creativity for smart technologies. Has anyone ever told you that you're the smartest person they know? If so, Augury wants to get to know you. Visit cmpod.net and click Augury's banner to submit your resume for positions in New York or in Haifa, Israel. Despite all hesitations and doubts, despite the calculated and careful years of scientific work that led to the published paper, Rebecca Kahn wasn't prepared for what followed. Reports on the discovery of mitochondrial Eve appeared in the media across the world, and Kahn was thrown into the emotional and intense debate between supporters of evolution and creationists who took the stories in the Bible as literal truth. Kahn said, quote, I got a lot of hate mail, crank mail, and some with strange scrawling notes. I even got a visit from the FBI after the Unabomber attacks. I got random calls in the middle of the night. End quote. Interestingly enough, though, Khan's discovery was actually embraced by some of the creationists, who mistook mitochondrial Eve to be the same as the biblical Eve. And if biblical Eve did exist then scientists just prove the stories in the book of Genesis. This claim is completely wrong, of course. It's easy to make the mistake of thinking that since mitochondrial Eve is our mutual ancestral mother, that she must be our only mother. And she definitely wasn't. Eve was just one of many women who lived in Africa 200,000 years ago, and all, or almost all, of these women are our ancestors too. Think of it this way. It is true that we are descendants of Eve, but that lineage is a very specific lineage from our mother's side and her mother and her mother before her, etc. We all have other ancestors from other lineages, say from our father and his mother and her father before him and so on and so on. Mitochondrial Eve's uniqueness is in the fact that she was lucky enough to have an unbroken lineage of daughters. That is, her daughter had a daughter, which had a daughter, and so on, until our time, some 100,000 years or more later. Now that's some luck. Rebecca Kahn's paper also got a harsh welcome from many of her colleagues in the scientific community, mainly because of its implications on the debate about the origins of Homo sapiens. As you may recall, there were two competing theories about Homo sapiens. The first, multi-regional origin of modern humans, claimed that the different human species merge into each other and become one single Homo sapiens. The other theory, out of Africa, claimed that the Homo sapiens appeared in Africa, left, and replaced all other humankind, making them extinct. Well, if Rebecca Kahn was right, and mitochondrial Eve, our mutual ancestral mother, lived in Africa about 100 to 200,000 years ago, then the out-of-Africa theory is clearly correct. Otherwise, the ancestral mother should have lived about a million years ago, in the pre-split era. But the multi-regional origin of modern humans was an established theory, and many scientists weren't ready to abandon it. Quote, as soon as I started talking about the preliminary analysis of data at scientific meetings, I got immediate hostile reactions, especially from some paleontologists. Also, some human geneticists that didn't understand population genetics. 
It made me mad because other scientists were doing the same thing with birds and lizards and fish, and they weren't taking anywhere near the amount of crap that I was taking. I could see it was only because I was talking about humans. These arguments raised so much emotion, and that really depressed me. End quote. But over the years, resistance to the out-of-Africa theory weakened as more and more scientists came to accept the genetic evidence for the African origin of Homo sapiens. With each passing year, improved techniques and many thousands of new DNA samples confirmed Khan's discovery. So, the molecular clock provides an answer to the mystery of Homo sapiens' origins. It now seems likely that some 100,000 years ago, a new and improved species of man appeared in Africa, and later drove out the now-extinct other human species, whether by force or by competition for resources. But our story is not done yet. In fact, it's only half of it. We've talked about mitochondrial Eve, but what about men? Do men have a genetic component that can provide information about their past? The answer is yes, but what this new component can reveal might be quite disturbing. In next week's episode, we will get to meet the masculine equivalent of mitochondrial Eve, Y-chromosomal Adam. We will talk about Genghis Khan and Aaron the Great Priest while trying to comprehend what, if at all, is the right way to interpret our newfound knowledge of the past and how we can use it wisely in the future. Stay tuned. That's it for this episode of Pod. Follow us on Twitter at Curious Minds Pod or subscribe to our mailing list to stay updated on future episodes. We're also on Facebook and our page on Facebook is where you'll also have a chance to crack our weekly science brain teaser. And here it is. When the Russians launched Sputnik 1 into space, President Eisenhower knew that the same rocket that carried the satellite can also be modified to carry a nuclear warhead. So he asked his advisors, if we know the satellite's speed and height above the ground, can we deduce the satellite's mass? Well, what do you think was their answer? Head over to our Facebook page, a link is in the website cmpod.net, and post your answer. We would love to hear your feedback and ideas for future episodes. Mail us at info at cmpod.net. If you're an advertiser interested in learning more about the podcast and becoming a sponsor, contact us at info at cmpod.net. CMPod is written and produced by me, Ron Levy, co-hosted by Kelia Lachlan and Shoshi Shmulevitz. Nir Sayag is our sound editor and Danny Timor is our business manager. Thank you for listening. See you again next week. Goodbye. So, Emil left the crabs behind and started working with hemoglobin. I'm sorry, that's funny with the crafts. <laughs> oh, I'm worried that people might not understand I'm saying crabs. Crab. It took about five years before I could drink a strawberry margarita again. End quote. <laughs> that's so gross. Well, the horse would be like, um, well, giddy up is what you say when you want it to go. But that's, but that's, 
I don't. <laughs> um. So giddy up. Like, oh, oh, I know what it is. I know it. It's whoa. You go whoa, whoa. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's it. Yep. Yeah.